Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me via remote technology is <laughs> our producer, Aurora. Hi, everybody. Aurora is working, house-sitting, and animal-sitting. How many dogs are there? There are four dogs in total, two greyhounds and two sheep twos. Yeah, and how many cats? And that was on top of six cats actually, but I managed to see two of them in the, in the room at the same time. Okay. You sound pretty faint, Dave, so speak up as loud as you can into into your iPhone there, all right? All right. All right. Thanks. Um, today, our guest is uh, Izzy Dorosky, and it's a little bit different kind of interview. Sometimes I like to bring you... Uh, other people in the Lyme community who are not scientists and not physicians. And Izzy is a Lyme survivor. He's really done well getting back on his feet after really having a tough, tough case of neurological Lyme. And he uh, he's pulled through and since then has written a book. And so he's an author and he does weave in a spirochete bacteria in his book. So you have to kind of get in deep before that uh, character, quote unquote, uh, comes to the surface. But it's interesting. And his story is pretty interesting. He has visited uh, Plum Island and seen firsthand what goes on out there uh, as an inspector for the, the local, local county health department. So that's a little bit about his background. Aurora, why don't you give us the official version? Uh Izzy Dorusky was born and raised on Long Island after receiving his Bachelor's of Science in Biology at State University of New York at Cortland. Izzy attained certification as a wastewater treatment operator. His early employment included a job as a research scientist in neurophysiology. Izzy spent most of his career as a senior environmental health scientist. He, com- he contracted Lyme disease and spent several years combating the neurological symptoms before being properly diagnosed. Izzy Jorowski has always had a deep passion for science and continues to study the hidden mysteries of this unique universe. His passion for science, as well as the beauty of Eastern Long Island and the Catskills, were inspirational in the writing of his book. All right, and without... Any more introductions? Here's Izzy Dorusky. Hi, Izzy. It's McKay Rippey. Hey, McKay. How are you? Quite well. Thanks for uh, being flexible. Oh, no problem. I'm retired. <laughs> Good for I you. Enjoy life. So you're you're uh, you're on the island, huh? Yep. Yep. Long Island. You ever been here? Uh, here and there. My daughter right now is at a uh, purchase. Finishing up her senior year. Um, yeah, exactly. So we've popped over from time to time. She's played some tennis matches over there and stuff like that. I'm a tennis player. Are you? Yeah, I love tennis. <laughs> I'm terrible. Uh, I play it like baseball. Try to hit it over the fence. <laughs> no, you can't. You got to play control. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what town are you located in? I'm in, well, actually, Deansboro, New York, which is outside of Clinton. Okay. Which is where Hamilton College is. Yeah, okay, Hamilton. And, yeah, and then that's outside of Utica, which is east of Syracuse. Let's see, Colgate? Are you near Colgate? Yeah, Colgate's about a half hour. I'm about okay. pretty much eh, northeast a little bit, mostly north. 
Okay, yeah. Well, uh, I, as I emailed you, I, I attended Cortland State. Yeah. I graduated December 1977, and uh, I was there for two and a half years, and I got to know that area decently, including Syracuse and the surrounding towns, uh, Ithaca. Yep, Ithaca. Did you yeah, go hiking nice. in the gorge down there and all that? Uh, we went downtown to Ithaca. I had a friend that used to go to the private school there. Uh, Ithaca College, I guess it is, yep, right? That's yeah. exactly right, yep. Yeah, I visited that with him. That was like the rich kid's school. <laughs> oh, like two, they could drop a course two days before the end of the course. Oh, really? Cortland, one nice. week, you ate it. You yeah. ate the course. Yeah. You know? That's more normal. Yep. Oh, yeah. Cortland was tough, but it was good. They were very good there. Yeah, it's a good school. It is a very good school. So you have a background in chemistry? Uh, well, I was a biology major. Biology, sorry. Okay, that's okay. Well, I was a biology major. I graduated Bachelor of Science in Biology in 1977. My first job out of college, I worked at Stony Brook University for a year and a half doing an internship with a PhD, uh, Dr. Nissen Schechter, in the neurophysiology, and I was learning two-dimensional electrophoresis, which is the precursor to DNA testing then. Oh, cool. We were looking into the uh, biochemistry background of, and the neurology of patients that had Huntington's Korea disease. Oh, really? But then it was really good. It was on grants. He was very nice to me. And then, but I was getting married, so I needed something very permanent. And yeah. then I, I got a job with the, with the Suffolk County Department of the De Department of Public Works. Mm -hmm. At that time, it was called something else, but it was the Department of Public Works and wastewater treatment. So I said, oh, this is really interesting. So I did that. They liked that I had a biology degree. Yeah. They put me at their more advanced denitrification plant, and then I went for night school for wastewater treatment, and I successfully got my 3A operator certification. And then, so I, I ran plants for about a year and a half, and then I got called by the health department, and they inspected plants and many other things. Yep. They said, oh, we could use a guy like you. And then I moved right into the health department, and I was there for, geez, about 30 years in the health department. So were you at the state level or the county level? County. At the county, okay. Suffolk County Department of Health Services. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was a public health sanitarian, which is an environmental health scientist. Huh. Then uh, I inspected everything from chemical tank farms, nuclear power plants, any kind of industrial setting. I saw the bolts to the space shuttle. Cool. I got called out on emergency response situations with the police. When the Gucci fireworks explosion happened, I got called out the next day. Uh, I've been to Plum Island. Uh, animal. I went to Plum Island for 30 years. You, uh, you probably heard about Plum Island Animal uh, Disease Research uh, Lab. Of course. So, why yeah, you, sure. I, I I, so you've just blown up everybody's mind, so why don't you just tell us a story or two about that place? All right. Okay, a story about Plum Island. As I first went there in 1981 with my supervisor then, name was Pat, and I'm still friends with Pat, and uh, he, he, we had these little pintos at that time. That was a county <laughs> I feel sorry for you. <laughs> the green pinto. And no uh, so anyway, so he picks me up. We're heading out, and we're going to miss the ferry. you got to be there at like 8.30, and there's a ferry that takes you from the mainland to Plum Island. So we stopped for gas real fast, and we, we got going, and then we just made the ferry, went there. And at that time, uh, they had a cafeteria where it was the old officers' club. Hmm. And uh, they had shut down their old Lab 257. 
and and they were moving all operations over to the new lab on the northeast northwest side of Plum Island. And uh, so when we get there, the we the you know, first time we go there, they had a little sewage treatment plant on Plum Island. Mm. That's what we had to inspect. Okay. And all of the wastewater that comes out of the research buildings goes for pressure cooking. First, they pressure cook it. Huh. So it comes in steaming hot into the equalization tank, into the wastewater treatment plant. Yeah. And then, uh, so then we, we, we were, you know, we were fascinated by being on Plum Island. So he took us for a ride out to the East End where they had old gun turrets during, you know, World War One and World War Two Army base. Yeah. And they had tunnels, actually. Way on the East End, beautiful island. And, uh, and we, we were exploring into the tunnels and we saw some seals. They were on the rocks. No kidding. It was a great time. We, then we went to the coffee shop there, which was in the old officers' club area there. And uh, we, we had a wonderful time. Now, I'll just tell you also that I went swim. My wife and I went swimming on Plum Island twice. We were invited there for their family day. And, uh, and uh, so once, once a year, they'll have family day, and they were allowed to uh, bring a guest. So the wastewater treatment plant operator was kind of friendly with him. He invited us as a guest. So I think we first went there in 2000, in 2001 and then in 2003. And uh, it's a lovely island, and they had a little barbecue going there. This was like late August, and and they, they had a lifeguard, and you go swimming. It's a gorgeous beach there. So uh, I had many experiences there at Plum Island. They're, I have to say they were very professional, very nice to me whenever I went there. Um, I was kind of friendly with the, the operator there, Miles, right when I left 2010 was when I retired. And uh, it's a very interesting, a beautiful island. So, uh, but I've been, to, I've been to many other locations on Long Island, my job. Uh, you know, Shoreham Nuclear Power Plant, when they closed that, I, I closed the doors to that place. That was in 1990, roughly in 96. And uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory, you know, I got going to uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory. I, I went there for 30 years inspecting that facility. You probably heard of it, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I used to go there mostly to inspect the wastewater treatment plant, but we they also signed an agreement with Suffolk County back in 1988. Uh, they had never really been inspected before by the EPA or anybody, so they huh. signed an agreement with the county health department that they'd allow our inspectors to go through all their buildings. Mm-hmm. So I went through more than half the buildings, and there was another employee, Madeline, that did inspections also, but I was lucky to get the Brookhaven Graphite Research Reactor. That was the first peacetime reactor in the United States. That was built in 1940, started in 1946. Wow. Completed in 1948. Eisenhower actually came to uh, dig dig a shovel full of dirt there. <laughs> With a golden shovel, right? <laughs> President at the time, but he yeah. came there. And, uh, so I got to inspect the old graphite reactor, and then and then also the high flux beam reactor, and that that's the reactor that was just to the east of it, and uh, that reactor later on uh, was was found leaking tritium from their spent rod storage pool. Oy. And, and when, I, when I inspected it in 1988, I wrote it up that 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 pool could potentially leak, and uh, you know they weren't happy with that assessment. And uh, but years went by, and, and what had happened is, is one of their drinking water wells near the uh, reactor found traces of tritium. Uh-huh. And then they uh, put test wells around it. Sure enough, it had been leaking it tritium. Leaked from- out, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, uh, that's uh, you know I, I could talk a lot more about my job, uh, all the different interesting experiences that I had flying in the police helicopter. 
Yeah, so that doesn't sound like a glamorous job, but it turned out to be uh, not too bad, huh? That was a great job. I had my own uh, truck. First, we had cars. Like I said, we had Pinto. And uh, then then we had police cars. And then then we had got trucks, really nice trucks. So I got to get home. And it was just a wonderful job. My last 12 years, I was a senior environmental health scientist. And I I ran the group just running the Woodward Treatment Plant Inspection Program. Because we had a hundred at that time, it grew from about 120 plants in Suffolk County to about 190 plants in no Suffolk way. County. Yeah, because there's no big plants like Bergen Point, and there's a yeah. lot of small condos uh, plants. Okay, there was a big building boom there in the 90s, and uh, so then they they separated out. And I, after you know, the good work I did at the lab, they gave me a promotion. I was a senior, and and I ran the inspection program. We had two employees, and. I still I still inspected probably about forty two plants myself, which I loved doing. I went to Plum Island, I went to Brookhaven Lab, I went out to Montauk, and it was just a wonderful job. And they offered me an early retirement center back in two thousand and ten. And you and it jumped, huh? Yep. And uh, I took it because you know we don't have any kids. My wife and I. Mm-hmm. She worked for the post office for thirty three years. I, I worked for thirty three years, and uh, so we took it. And if I have to go back to work, I will. I still keep, I still maintain my. Operator certification, oh, cool. and I wrote my book, uh, yes. my book. And but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my background with Lyme disease. Yeah, that's all right. Well, let's let's before you jump into that. How so? You go from so obviously you're pretty. You have a curious mind. You have an exciting job. But wh- why? Why an author? I mean, everybody's heard the line. You have one book left in you or in you to write. But you actually sat down and wrote it. What What inspired you to do that? Okay, what inspired me to do that was I'm a big sci-fi person. Uh, I'm like crazy about sci-fi. And it probably uh, started when I was a kid back in the 60s. I'm 59 right now. And uh, my parents had a beer beverage distributor, and they they had to work every other night. So I was home on Saturdays. I would watch The Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. I got really inspired by that and went to school. I read Isaac Asimov. I read a lot of science fiction books. So I really like science. I'd love, I always thought I'd love to write a science fiction book one day. So the first idea came to me back when my wife and I visited my sister in Nevada, riding through that desert, 500 miles of desert from Utah to Nevada. And just the train there just like did something, it fed information into my mind. I said, I'm going to write one day. And then before I was retiring, I, I started to come up with the ideas when we were, visiting up in the Catskill Mountains, which we used to own property up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the little village of Pine Hill, I saw this old house, and uh, it was all dilapidated, and the, the inspiration for that book sort of came to me, hmm. right, part of, partly then. And then before I retired, I was working on the concepts of it, and I had, I had known Brookhaven National Lab for so long, and it's such an interesting background with that laboratory. I mean, that was a World War I Army base, it was a World War II Army base where right. they kept German prisoners during World War II. Yep. And, I mean, it's got a lot of fascinating things about it. So I said, by God, I can really write a book. So I, I just started to write up notes, and I ended up seeing a editor in New York City. And uh, I showed her my notes and everything, and she kind of looked at me and gave me this look like, I don't think this guy's capable of writing a sci-fi book. <laughs> she laid down a challenge, huh? Twisted me. Yeah. You know, and I, I t- and we paid her three hundred bucks. <laughs> and I said to my wife, "Like, I'm gonna write this thing." Yeah, so, I'll show uh, you. <laughs> anyway, I had a lot. Of, I put a lot of my background into it. You know, a lot of my background 
uh, going to Brookhaven National Lab. And I'm just going to say, by the way, that that I'm I'm still associated with Brookhaven National Lab. I'm a member on their Citizen Advisory Committee mm-hmm. for about the last almost four years. So I, my book's a fiction book. Right. I don't want anybody to take anything away like I'm trying to say something. And they're very professional at Brookhaven Lab. I have a very good relationship with them. So I just want to get that out there. And and they have a very good record as far as uh, their environmental cleanup background. Mm-hmm. And they recognized they had problems. And in my book, I kind of mentioned some parallelities with, with the real Brookhaven Lab. But it's just a fiction book. Yeah. So anyway, that that's how I basically got. The, uh, so and that, so here's my next question. So thanks for you know standing up for them and and setting the record straight there. So what was your process writing? Did you sit down in the morning? Did you just did you? I'm always curious about how writers do their thing. How I did it. You know, first, I have to tell you, I'm a very lazy writer. <laughs> so lazy, it's pathetic. So there's, there's not going to be inverted mask too then. Um. I got ideas for four more books, believe it or oh, not. Okay. You better and, uh, get the next going. One would, would be partial sequel. Okay. But but anyway, uh, I decided, I decided, I think it was in 2012, my mom had passed away because she had Alzheimer's and hmm. finally I had some time on my hands. And then one, one summer day, I just went down in the basement because it's quite warm here. And I just started writing and it was, it was actually the graphite reactor chapter. That's what I started on. Because uh-huh. I inspected it, and uh, so I started, it and it, from there it just I just took off. And but my my thing was I wrote every other day, basically. I okay. found out that if you wrote every day, I think it would drive you crazy. Okay. And I wrote every other day, which would give me time to go goof off and go bicycling. I love the bike, uh, hiking, and then I looked forward to that that next day. Nice. So, so I, I kind of got into the routine. Of course, there's going to be times where you can't write because you're booked. You got to go somewhere. But I kind of stuck to the schedule, basically. So I started the book in August of 2012, and I finished writing it in, let me just think, I would say it was in early December of 2013. Okay. It was over 500 pages. Uh, so somewhere in the middle of the book, somewhere, uh, I think in 2013, I told my wife, I said, you know what? I got to hire somebody to help go through my writing and and get it into the best verbiage it can be. Right. And, and I, I said, like, I'm a lazy writer because I used to write inspection reports constantly mm-hmm. with Suffolk County. And then I had to write technical reports for reports about sewage treatment plants of Suffolk County, which was like pulling teeth. Yeah. So I hired this this uh, this uh, pre-editor, uh, Denise Schnittman. She, she was my uh, developmental editor. And uh, she helped comb through my work and and get the sentences tweaked better. And then she would send it back to me, and I would go, oh, this is not like this. I don't like that. Oh, I'm going to add another sentence here. And then, so that was really helpful. And then, I, then, then after I finished my book, she was still working on my reservoir of work. Mm-hmm. And then she didn't finish until... I would say it was about May of 2014. Did she help shape the story? No, she she didn't change the story at all. She didn't she didn't add anything to the story other than just reworking my sentences. Okay, so it's just making things clear and easier no, she, to read. she basically just reworked my sentences yeah. and the dialogue. Yeah, but all the concepts, all the all of the characters in the book, I thought up and. uh 
So then anyway, I hired a final book editor to, in, in the end, as good as the manuscript was at that point, And I threw 70, 27 pages out my sa- myself at that point. It was probably <laughs> about, at that point, like 490 pages around there. Then I hired Lourdes Bernard, and she works for Newsday. And she's been there for 16 years, and she's a real pro. And and I found her because I had worked with, he wrote a science fiction book. He worked for the health department. He used her, and he liked her. Uh-huh. So I hired uh, Lourdes on, and, and she was wonderful. But she was kind of tough on me. Yeah, and, uh, editors you know, she are went, tough. She was tough. She went through, and uh, you know, she, she constantly, who's speaking here? <laughs> show, not tell. She was big on show, not tell. Yes, yes. So, uh, and she maybe, we did, I don't know, I, we did over 50 rewrites. I did over 50 rewrites. And uh, so, uh, you know, maybe probably even more. A lot most of them weren't long or big, but you know, rewrite. So it it was a real journey, and I have to say, in the end, I really enjoyed it. And then the the process of getting it published, I could I could talk for an hour on that. You know, just what you have to jump through the hoops and all that, and picking the graphics. I hired a good graphics designer, Gabriel Pendergast, and uh, we went back and forth with possible graphics. And I wanted something, you know, because it's a bit of a romance story. You know, I had no intention of writing a romance story, but huh. it turned out to be a bit of a romance story. Dr. John Sanborn, mm-hmm. uh, he's a theoretical physicist. Do you want me to talk about the characters a bit? Or? Yeah, because I'm kind of curious about that, too. So let's let's pause for a second here. So the, the book, you got a publisher, so that means you can get it on Amazon. How can you get your book? My book's available on Amazon, okay, and the name of the book is The Inverted Mask. And I have a website for the book. It's theinvertedmask.com. Okay, cool. And uh, there's two versions of the book. There's an ebook version, and there is a paperback version. And the, the ebook version has a different uh, graphics. Because I, I like two of them so much, and I sent them out for review by my friends. And they, they generally like the, uh, <clears throat> the romantic-looking one a little bit better. But uh, the graphics one uh, was, was very appreciated, too. So I used the graphics one on the ebook, and then the violet-purple one with uh, Dr. Marta Padlow, the hot Dr. Marta Padlow, with Dr. John Sanborn, a th- theoretical physicist, running from this beam of radiation. That's on the paperback. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I noticed that. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you covered that, because I was wondering if there are different editions, what the deal was. So that's a that's great story. Book. Just one's an ebook and then one's the paperback. Very cool. Uh, so anyway, um, let's see. Where could we take this now? I could go right into talking about the book a bit if you want, or I could bring up. Uh, maybe it'd probably be good to talk about my experience with Lyme disease. Yeah, let's let's do that. So and how to, and then you can weave that like how that is woven into the book, and then is okay. What happened is is here I am. I'm a Certified public health sanitarian, environmental health scientist in the early 1980s, having having a great career, traveling all over Suffolk County, doing wonderful. We inherited some money. We're putting an addition in our house in 1986. I was working out, feeling great. And all of a sudden, we go to Cupsaw Beach. It's a beautiful white sand beach on the on the ocean, and near West Hampton Beach. Yep. And my wife goes, "What's that purple lesion on your ankle?" <laughs> Damn, I don't know. So I'm looking at it. It's about the size of a 50 cent piece. Yep. And it's not a bullseye rash. It's just a purple lesion that's uplifted. I was feeling fine. 
So I said, damn, I don't know. And and you know what? I can't, and I just brushed it off. Yeah, I got bit by something. Oh, well. Oh, didn't know what it was. Maybe I banged it or something. Yeah. So amazingly, about a month earlier, I had been reading a Newsday uh, about Lyme disease. They had like a big pullout section. And and I was like amazed at it because, you know, I've gotten, I was, when I was a kid, I went in the woods all the time out here. and I got bit by ticks all the time. Yeah. And they mostly talked about it as being a illness of arthritis. Mm-hmm. They did mention a little bit neurological. Right. That's the big, right. The knee stuff, especially, right? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, about a week later, I'm riding in my county truck and all of a sudden I'm getting these dizzy spells. Hmm. It's like unusual, horrible dizziness with this like twisted headache. It's hard to describe the headache. And it, and, and it was doing something to my ability to perceive and think. And then, then later that day, I started having problems with my, holding my pen. And uh, so, so I, I would hold the pen and I lose my grip on it. And I'm like, "What the heck is this?" And then I was getting the shooting pains down my arm. Hmm. So I went to my local doctor, who I'd been going to for many years, and he said, "I don't know what it is, but maybe you have myasthenia gravis." That's what he said to me. He says, "This sounds like myasthenia gravis." And uh, and and uh, so. He did all kinds of tests, blood tests, blood tests are normal. Couldn't find anything. I'll make a long story shorter now. I'm going to abridge it a bit. So uh, he couldn't find anything wrong with me. He sent me to uh, a neurologist in New York City. Mm -hmm. And now I'm getting worse and worse. And I'm I'm starting to have very bad bouts with my concentration. I was at work and I'm talking to people and I'm having a difficulty understanding what they're saying. Really? Yeah, this is how it affected me. And I, and, I, and I was dizzy. I had this underlying dizziness that I couldn't explain it and, and the twisted headache along with it. So this just kept getting worse and worse. And weeks went by. I went from doctor to doctor, and they couldn't find anything wrong. And my, and my doctors started to say, well, maybe it's psychological. Maybe you're just, <laughs> you're just having some kind of a bad psychological episode. Like you're going crazy. Right. So then, then it got to the point where uh, by the, the, the end of the summer, I told my wife I can't work. Because I'm riding the car and I can't, I'm finding it hard to concentrate. And just ho- holding a conversation with people was the worst. I just something about it. I just couldn't. I, I, I just struggled to understand what they were saying. So uh, I was laying in my parents' house. I was out of work at this point. I was on sick leave, and uh, my neighbor came over and he said, "You know, you know, they thought maybe Lyme disease, but they did a test and I failed it." Of course. And he goes, "You know, maybe." Uh, he goes, maybe you got Lyme disease. I, I flunked the test. He goes, I've got a neighbor that her knee swelled up, had the, had the, had the rash on her, and she tested negative. I go, really? So, uh, so he said, uh, you know, maybe, maybe go to Stony Brook. So, uh, so I went to Stony Brook University. Now, now I'm out of work for a bunch of months. I think it's probably in September of 1986. And then unbelievably, I got, an angel. I, I got this Dr. R. Lipschitz. Huh. He was a, uh, intern. I think he was an intern from South Africa. He was definitely was South African and he could still see the lesion mark on my ankle. Okay. And he, he said, he said, you, you've got all the signs and symptoms of Lyme disease. Huh. And I did have a spinal tap before that. Oh my goodness. Which showed nothing. Yeah. It's not and a good test. So he put me on tremendous amounts of penicillin and probenicid. Huh. at that time. And, uh, you got better. I started to get better yeah. and then it got worse. 
I forgot. I failed to mention that that when I first went to my doctor, he thought I had an ear infection, and he put me on a low dose of penicillin for three weeks. Hmm. And that was that was what, according to my doctor, the worst thing to do because it only kills the most vulnerable, but the, the they form cysts and they yep. can live on invade the immune system. Yeah, and drives them into hiding too. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So so he said, "Oh my God!" He goes, uh, "This isn't good." Uh, this doctor Lipschitz. So. He says, stay on this for a month or so, and we'll see how you do. And then comes November, I, I'm just getting a lot worse. And I was losing my ability to just about drive the car completely. Mm. And uh, I, it, I, was some, I was almost having, starting to have these like blackout periods, like where I would lose consciousness. I, I mean, I was, my eyes were open and everything, but my realization was going. So almost like a seizure, huh? Exactly. It was like a seizure. And... Uh, so one November day was, I remember it was very sunny outside. I went outside and it's sun seemed surreal. I think it was part of my disease. And a friend said, go, go call the doctor now. So I called him up and he said, come on in right now. And he had a team of doctors waiting for me. One of them was Dotwaller, hmm. the famous, the famous doctor, Dr. Dotwaller. Yep. All right. So anyway, they all did an examination of me and they said, okay, they agreed to have me in for about four days and do all kinds of tests on me. So they, they, they first they tested me for drugs, make sure I wasn't a drug addict. Uh-huh. Of course, so I'd do the same thing. But yeah. So anyway, and then they did all these neurological tests on me, nerve conduction studies. You know, they zap you. Yeah, that's no it was fun. like torture. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, I ended, they could find nothing wrong, and finally they brought me to a, a, to a psychiatrist, mm. psychologist, mm-hmm. and did psychometric testing on me. Mm-hmm. I remember they had all these crazy questions. They would say, okay, think of, think of all the words you could think of with the letter A, go. And, uh, you know, you'd name them off and name them off and, and then stop. You know, they would do that. And then finally he gives me my results. He goes, you are absolutely, you, you, you flunked the whole thing. He said, you're doing horrible. He said, you can't possibly be this bad. And I told him, I said, I have no, what I, I have no idea what I'm doing. So then, they decided they, they decided that I did have Lyme disease. Okay. And then they treated me with Rosepin. Yes. For uh, two weeks. And uh, I had the, uh, oh, what do you call the thing that's attached to your arm? The uh, um, Heplock, I oh, think it's called, okay. right? Or, and I gave yeah, myself injections. Yeah. And, and amazingly, that turned me around. Yeah. Just to break it up. And then, and then I started to feel better. And I started to, you know, get more awareness and, and, uh, and then, but it was, I'll just make a long story short is over the next year, I, I didn't take any more antibiotics, but it, it took me a long time and I just got better and better. And then eventually I went back to work. I think I was out of work from, from September to March. Wow. And then I went back to work and I still wasn't right. And, yeah. and some of the employees knew they used to goof on me, you know, they would, they would, they would, just goof on me and, and, you know, cause they just knew I just wasn't with it yet, you know? Yeah. And, and then amazingly over two, three years, three years, I got practically normal and, uh, I whoo, got out of that one. Yeah. No you know? kidding. And then, uh, so anyway, so 10 years later, 1996, I'm riding in my County car doing some inspections. I start to get neuralgia down my arm. Oh no. And then uh, I get this neuralgia down my arm, and then I could, I did Lyme disease feeling came back. It get cold. Yeah. Things get dark. Okay. 
headache, a little dizziness, come right on. And then so I, I started to come back on me. So, so did, then, uh, at, the, at that point, did you recognize it as Lyme disease or you, do you think it's something new? No, it was Lyme because I, knew, knew. Okay. I knew it. Okay. I knew exactly what it was. And then uh, so I, by this time now, the news on Lyme disease had been out. Mm-hmm. He show on and, and, they, and they used to talk about this one doctor who was treating it in Nassau County named Dr. Butchma. So I went to him and he didn't think I had Lyme. He didn't think I, but he did the he did the Western blot test on me. Okay, and, and then it, he one day I get a call from him. He goes, "We just got your bands back." He goes, "You got, you got, I think eight out of ten bands. <laughs> you you are loaded up with Lyme disease, buddy." Yeah. And then uh, so he goes, "Come on in, we'll we'll treat you." So he he put me on Russ. I think that, that originally he put me on uh, just antibiotics for a long time, and uh, that that basically that basically nullified it, and and I got better. And it's pretty normal, but I had, I had to take him for a while. I remember that. And then and then he eventually put me on intravenous rosetin, yeah. ceftrioxone. And then that kind of broke it up. And then then I had another flare-up in 99. And then he treated me with a combination of uh, two antibiotics, oral, and they worked very effectively. And uh, But I was having these little relapses that would come back. Yep. But then... My friend, my my one friend who runs a, a Lyme disease organization out this way, Eva Hoey, Empire State Lyme Organization. Uh, she said, "Go see Burescano." Okay. All right. She said, "Go go to Burescano." So I said, "Okay." So, so I made the appointment. It wasn't easy to get into him. Nope, it's not. I went to Burescano, and he he was a really good person, and 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 I but he said right after that, "You're going to do everything I tell you, or leave." <laughs> and uh, he, he was tough like that, and he did his whole regimen on me with the with the vitamins, the yep. nutraceuticals, yep, uh, all all his therapy that he did, including you know some anti lyme agents, and and uh, he did that for a year. He tested me, and I was loaded up. I tested, I tested every way for Lyme disease. I tested the Western blot, a PCR, uh, a bunch of tests that he had tested up, and. Uh, See what happened is it took me decade or more to build up antibodies. Yeah, that's my own theory. It took yep. me a long time to develop antibodies to it. Yep. And and, and actually, before I went to Burescano, I saw this other doctor I knew who gave me antibiotics. I said I don't want to take them until I go to him because I want him to draw blood and see what's going on. And my immune system was fighting it. Yeah. I'd, I'd get night sweats. You know, I would get uh, you know cold. That's a big sign of Lyme. I get cold, and then. Uh, Sure enough, I tested right a PCR everything, so it was good. You know that my that my immune system was fighting it somewhat, and then so I so what happened with your scan after two years, the symptoms just stripped it away, and then within but I went to him in two thousand and one, and by two thousand and three four I was normal, practically normal. Terrific. And then to this day, uh, you know he he folded up in two thousand two thousand and six his operation and he's a good person. Him and him and Jerry, uh, I don't know if you know Jimmy, Jerry at all. No. He's Simons. He's a physician's assistant and he worked with him. So then when he folded up, uh, I, I, uh, Jerry went to a doctor in New York city who invited me to come there. So basically since 2006, I go once a year for a checkup and they draw blood and everything. And, and, and I'm, I'm like, practically normal 
I do get, I can, I can get like flare ups mm-hmm. if I stress myself. Like my wife broke her ankle last two summers ago, uh-huh. which stressed, you know, stretched the heck out of anybody. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, which came back sort of like giving me symptoms, but I have my own regimen of nutraceuticals. I take and natural anti-Lyme agents Good. that I Good. take. Yeah. I take like grapefruit tea extract. Yep. All right, teasel root. Yeah, and so do you cycle through these, or do you take them steadily? I cycle them. Yeah, good. Cycle them. Yeah. I cycle them just when I need them, but I'll take it every now and then, the grapefruit seed. But I went to a lecture at uh, around 2006 or seven at uh, Empire State Lyme, and there was a, a, I think it was a researcher there giving a lecture, and he said one of the most, uh, in, in the test tube, anti-cyst stage, breaking up lime in the cyst stage, was grapefruit seed extract. Really? They said that that was one of the most effective ways of breaking it up in the cyst stage. And so I, I remember one time I was playing a lot of tennis, and I, I, took, I just took it for like three months. Yeah. And, you know, after a while, it's like an antibiotic starts to bother your intestine. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. And it just, from then on, it just seemed to, I don't know, my symptoms just really like evaporated away, like, you know. Yeah, well, just, yeah, you've got you got the cysts that are persistent, and then they burrow in, and then you've got the biofilm stuff. So you need, well, in addition to the antibiotics, which can actually kill the suckers, you need something to break up their for their fortresses, their defenses. Right. So another thing that I take occasionally is uh, colloidal silver. Yeah, good. Stuff. I read about it, and you know, there was an article, uh, I think it was in Scientific American, but that they found out that attaching silver to present-day antibiotics, yep. magnifies, magnifies their effectiveness by 50,000 times. Significantly, yep. Yeah, and they, they studied it, in, I know, in a university down south, and it's it's the ionic form that works. Right. It basically kills them by electricity. Yeah. And it rips open your cell wall. That's what it does. So, so anyway, that's my story with Lyme. Now, if, we, if you want to get into the book and how it affected me, I retired in 2010, and uh, I, I, I got the idea to, to write the book. I, I, was, I wrote down about 30 pages of notes before I retired. And, and I got committed to write the book. Um, so then I, I'm, so I was picking out names. Now, the book was going to be take place at a fictitious national lab known as Ridgewood National Lab. And uh, a lot of my ex- past experiences being at Brookhaven National Lab for 30 years definitely, and, and other things, too, influenced me tremendously. So, so anyway, I, I uh, decided that, and I asked my wife, I go, what do, you, what do you think about the name National Lab for a book? She goes, terrible, absolutely horrible. <laughs> then I had been researching a lot of things that helped me in my book is I'm a science junkie. Uh-huh. And I, I have a DVR, and I have about 120 programs on it from through the wormhole, um, Universe Special, uh, National Geographic, you name it. I, I, I just watch them. I, I suck them up. I'm just, I just love them. Uh-huh. And I saw I saw this one on on LSD. Yeah. And uh, you know LSD is an amazing chemical. Yes, it is. So anyway, uh, I got the idea from watching this and reading about it about the, the hollow mask trick that they do. I don't know if you've heard about that. No, tell me about this because that I haven't heard of. Okay, what you can do is go on my website and then go to the book realm. That's, yeah. That's the last uh, column. Up on top, and on there, I have video looks, and one of them is the the hollow inverted mask illusion. And if you watch that, it's it's what it is is that this is a part in my book, and I kind of want to give away too much in the book, but I'll give this little tidbit out: is is that if 
Uh, if you were to show pictures of masks forwards, uh, which would be uh, a convex. Yeah, okay. Yep. Some being backwards. Yeah. Precisely placed, being concave. Yeah. All right. And you, were to, you and I were to look at it. We could not tell the difference. You can't tell, right. But if somebody had schizophrenia and if somebody was took had taken LSD previously, they can clearly see the difference. No kidding. Yes. So anyway, I, I saw that and, and and that I was like, wow. So I said to my wife, I go, how about National Lab, the inverted mask? She goes, National Lab's no good. Go with the inverted mask. So that's what I did. So it just, for some reason, the name just rings with people. Yeah, it's and, cool uh, and so far, you know, it, it seems to be fairly successful. So anyway, the book takes place at a fictitious national lab sometime in the future. And the, the story really revolves around two main protagonists. Uh, Dr. John Sanborn, he's a theoretical physicist, and he ends up designing and building a, an experimental device 900 feet below the ground. All right. And uh, his hot fiance is a psychiatrist. She works in the medical research building. And her name is Dr. Marta Padlo. Okay. And one of the things, she's an official health physicist. So she does physicals on all the employees because they work around a lot of high energies, electromagnetic energies. Okay. And she's also doing research with isomers of LSD for pain research, which, which medical researchers really are. They really are working on isomers of LSD for pain research, hmm. primarily cluster hex. And uh, so anyway, but the... The physics science behind Dr. John Sanborn's experiment came from a top physicist of the world named Dr. Emery Hillcraft. And so all, all of the theory that went into his underground experiment came from this physicist, Dr. Emery Hillcraft. And Dr. Emery Hillcraft disappeared mysteriously 19 years before. Okay? And so naturally, Dr. John Sanborn and Dr. Mario Paolo were very interested what happened to this guy. Yeah. And they go, they go looking into this background of him, and they find out all about him. And, and also, I'm just going to tell you that the book has a backdrop with the many worlds theory of quantum physics. All right, that's the backdrop for the story. I'm not sure if you ever heard of the many worlds theory. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, do, so do, they bounce, the do, do they bounce around in the book, or do they stay here? You're going to have to read it. <laughs> But, but anyway, I dedicated the book to um, Dr. Everett, um, Hugh Everett is his name, mm -hmm. Dr. Hugh Everett. He, uh, he was a grad student at Princeton in the 1950s, and he was the first one to come up with the, what's now known as the many worlds theory of quantum physics. And he, 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 he backed it all up with precise mathematics, and they were so impressed with him that they actually brought him to meet Niels Bohr, who is the father of quantum physics, yeah. one of the fathers of quantum physics. Yeah. Many of them were German. And uh, he's Danish. So he met Niels Bohr in, in Denmark and had a discussion with him and his friend, and they ended up saying to him, you don't know anything about quantum physics. He goes, uh, it's a stupid idea. <laughs> Got so despondent after that, and he couldn't find a position right. in physics. Right. So he ended up working for the Defense Department as a research simulating atomic bomb explosions. Huh. And uh, so, uh, so anyway, uh, he, was a, he was a heavy drinker and heavy smoker. And, uh, but he, later on in his life, somewhere in the 70s, 
he was invited, I think the University of Texas and other universities, to give a talk on the many worlds theory. And his theories were resurrected at that time. And then uh, several researchers started to really go through his work. And one of them, Dr. Max Tegmark from MIT, who gave me permission in my book to use his cartoon in the back of the book. Uh, Dr. Max Tegmark and others. And they, they started reworking his, uh, uh, promoting his work. And uh, nowadays, uh, the many worlds theory, the, the Everett viewpoint, is one of the most prominent viewpoints in physics that our reality that we experience right now on this phone conversation is only one of infinite realities. Right. All right. And then and, how is, so, so you understand this stuff. So how is that different from string theory? Well, well there's, there's four different levels. I actually, in my book, I discussed this a bit. You're going you're gonna to get a tour of, let me just tell you that there's a gigantic accelerator built at, in my book, at the Ridgewood National Laboratory. It's known as the HITS Project, the Heavy Ion Target Super Collider, it's an acronym. Now in Brookhaven, they have an accelerator there, it's known as RIC, which is the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. That's only about a mile and a half in circumference. Yeah, it's in my book, the HITS is 18 miles right. in circumference. Part of it goes underneath Long Island Sound. It's 350 <laughs> feet deep. I love it. So, now you brought up super string theory. Yeah. Now, Physicists feel that there's four levels of the many worlds theory, okay? That there's four levels of parallel worlds, all right? Now, Dr. Max Tegmark wrote a really good, uh, he wrote a really good article on this. I think it was in the 2003 version of Scientific American, known as Parallel Worlds. I think there's a link to it on my, on my book realm also. So, so anyway, they, they believe that there's four levels of parallel realities. One of them is that our universe right now is infinite in size. And if it's infinite in size, then it's a ship shot that there's another, there's another Earth out there with another one of you on it calling me up right now. All right? Yeah. And they've done, it, they've done satellite. They sent a satellite. I think it's called WMAP. They sent out a space probe called known as WMAP, which mapped the universe, and it showed that the universe is flat. Therefore, it's infinite in size. And if it's infinite... And there's only so many arrangements of atoms that it's absolute certain that there's another one of you and me out there thinking we're the only one. All right, that's a level one, and then it goes level two, level three, level four. Huh. The, the level two universe is when our universe was born, it, there was other ones born alongside. That's, that's the bubble nucleation, they call that. Okay? And you understand, like, when the Big Bang happened? Yeah. There's other Big Okay, now the level three is the one that I'm talking about, the many worlds theory in quantum physics. That's a level three. Okay. And then the level four deals with super string theory in brains. Uh, okay. Now, and then, so Dr. Max Tegmuth gives a lot of uh, really good lectures on this. And uh, so you can maybe refer to that. I think there's links on my website to that in the book realm section. Okay. So anyway, the... Uh, so before you go on, so do you, do you need a degree in nuclear physics to be able to read your book? No. Okay. No, it would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I really need it. So, so, so made, here's a, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask this another way. I'm going to ask this a Long Island way. So, is this a book for geeks or is this book for everybody? For, it's really for everybody. Okay. Really for everybody, but having a science background will help. Or a, cur a curious mind, huh? I, yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm always into science. I just, you know, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but. I made the story interesting, and the characters, like I said, you really want to meet them. 
I made them. And, uh, you know, this, there's, there's a, I'll just say this, there's a very evil professor at the lab named Dr. Tonner, Dr. Hadley Tonner. And, uh, uh, he's, he's in the background there and the lab police are, you know, at, at the lab, at the laboratory are not so nice. And, uh, so anyway, but I, I, when I, when I put the science in, I tried to make it as entertaining as possible. I tried to not make it too difficult and I very, I'm very uh, good with the explanations. And then I, I put in, I'm very big on ambient chapters because I'm very much into hiking. Uh-huh. I love going to the Pine Barrens and walking on the beach and riding my bike. I put, a, I put some ambient chapters in those breaks that, you know, to, to uh, give you a beautiful feeling and raise your thought level. And with all the information you take in to make you think about your life, your reality, your world. And, and I wanted people to be different. I wanted them to think differently after they read this book. They want, I wanted them to be enlightened. And, and it definitely has some visionary aspects to it and some metaphysical, metaphysicalness to it that I purposely put in uh, to make you think about, you know what, this life that you're in is a little different than you think. There's also a chapter in the back that uh, I, I, I think it was called A Note from the Author and Special Thanks, and I thank four scientists who helped inspire me in the book. And, and uh, one of them is uh, Dr. Uh, Tom Campbell, and I stumbled across his work. And uh, he's big on, he's a nuclear physicist, he's big on that this, this reality that we're in is, is not objective at all. Mm-hmm. It's a subjective reality. And, and scientists and physicists are doing doing a lot of experiments nowadays that are showing this, that, that our consciousness actually has something to do with reality. And things are not so certain as we thought. This reality is an approximation of an of a, of a objective reality. It's just an approximation of an objective reality. And that's what that inverted mask test kind of gives you, right? That you get a, your brain gives you an approximation of what you're seeing. That's, that's good. You know, I didn't think of it that way, but that's true. That's true. It's... Uh, yeah, that that our, our our brains fill in a lot. Yes, they do. Yes, Pattern they do. matching. Yep. Yep. Totally do. So so anyway, I don't know if you have any questions you wanted to ask. Well, <laughs> that's you covered it, man. Yeah, it's it's a cool book. You know, it's 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 also a light romance book. Um, it's it, as I say in my uh, advertisements: uh, mystery, suspense, action, romance. It's got all that. Um, it definitely takes some twists and turns in the book. You know, I have to tell you that I'm a big sci-fi guy, and the movies are just not good anymore. Oh, I was, you know, that was one of my first questions. Like, when was the last, what was the last good sci-fi movie, do you think, that you saw? Oh, the, the last good sci-fi movie that I saw, well, Shutter Island was kind of interesting. Uh-huh. You know, but they, did, they didn't need to do some parts. If I had to take it, I would write that story a bit. You know, Shutter Island was interesting. Um, they just came out with Interstellar. Yeah. And that was a big disappointment. Yeah. You know, they, and they, they do, ironically, they brought in, because I watched on the Science Channel, they had Dr. Skip Thorne from, uh, I think he's from Caltech, as a consultant for that movie. And uh, he was talking about the science of the book, going through a wormhole yeah. for uh, time travel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he and he, he's, we're one of the foremost physicists that deals in the realm of, of going through, possibly going through a wormhole, do worms will really exist, et cetera. And, uh, you know, but the, the movie really didn't do it in, in my book. You know, I, I just think that they just failed a lot in that movie. It was interesting to see how they presented it with the space uniforms and, and the way this 
the starship looked and all that, but the book story kind of lost it. But now it's been a long time since there's been some good sci-fi movies. I'm just trying to think in the last 10 years if I can think of a good sci-fi well, movie, and I can't think of any. I'll just tell you some of my favorites. Okay, let's we'll we'll wrap up with that because you've been real generous with your time. So give me give me the top it. give me the top three. We're gonna have to get together, have a few beers. T- totally. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Forbidden Planet. Really? All right? Okay. Forbidden, it came out in 1956. First electronic music ever used in a in a, in a sci-fi movie. Well, did they use a Moog? No, they had artists from Greenwich Village. That uh, produced, they used transistors to make sound. No kidding. So, so it's really right, early now, stuff. Another one is uh, the Andromeda Strain. Yeah. Michael Crichton. I have to say my my work is more like Michael Crichton. Okay. Okay. And I'd have to throw in the third one to be Arthur C. Clarke, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, like, that, that's, that's a mind-blowing one. It is. It, you know, what's nice about it is they leave a lot to your imagination. <laughs> Well, when I first saw that, I probably was 14, and it really bugged me that they didn't kind of wrap it up in a nice bow. Right. Having a 14-year-old mind. It's like, well, how does that thing end? Yeah. Just give me the ending. Yeah. You can can interpret it. Yeah. Lots of different ways, right? You know, and, uh, you know, the way I I interpreted it is uh, he, he went on a journey, and a lot of it was was psychological mm-hmm. and uh I, I, that's the way i kind of looked at it that way but uh so anyway that, that's my favorite right there now before we wrap up i just want to know what tractor is that that you're standing <laughs> next to that, i'll say it's a ford it is definitely a ford and uh it's a 860 wow and what makes it so it's got a little bit of horsepower in it for us for a small tractor it's got about 40 horses in it and the 860 has i'm going to bore people completely to death here but the uh it the clutch uh engages and disengages the pto so if you push the clutch halfway down you'll stop the pto from spinning so it gives you a little more control of what you're doing oh cool so that's that's the deal with that little tractor yeah, my uh, my fault. My actually, my family came from a group of farmers here on the East End. Um, my grandfather had a turkey farm here. No kidding. During the Depression, and, and he made it. And then my father was a farmer. He was born in 1920. He was a farmer until 1960. And then him and his brother realized that he was struggling to make money in farming because you could work your butt off, but you know yeah. you, the potatoes that they were growing, you know, they couldn't sell them for a good price. Yep. So they bought a beverage distributor and he did good he put me through college and uh you know I, I worked with him all the time there at the beverage place so anyway i, I know farming a lot and long island, eastern long island was was all, all farms all farms that's right all but farms. now we've got the hampton spread coming over here and uh wineries you know the wine which are farming which are agricultural so but it's changed a bit but luckily we still have a lot of open space yeah it's beautiful out there i've been out that way well just once actually and uh it's it's incredible. It's a it's isolated, you know, it because it's isolated, it uh it's got some of the old feel to it. If you yeah. go, if you go far enough out. Yes, on the east end, but it, it's changed a lot since probably nineteen eighty two. Oh, That's really? when it, it's virginity, you know, <laughs> and a lot of uh housing developments, yeah. golf courses uh, and the such. But we still have a lot luckily we have a lot of pine barrens. Yeah, we probably have over fifty thousand acres of pine barrens, and uh, they're all preserved. 
That's and uh, they're very lovely. They go special to go in. And I just want to say also that, uh, I don't know if I had to mention it, one third of my book takes place in the Catskill Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, my, my wife and I are big hikers. We go to the Catskills all the time. You actually go up two mountains in the book. It's part of my ambient chapters. Uh-huh. And uh, so I just wanted to get that in there. So anyway, uh, I guess I, we'll close it up if you want. And uh, like I said, it's The Inverted Mask. You can buy it on Amazon. And uh, you can check out the book on my website, theinvertedmask.com, Mystery, Suspense, Action, and Romance. And it's, it's a really cool book. Now, a lot of my uh, people are on Facebook. Do you have a Facebook page? Yes, I do. But you know what? I, I just realized that I didn't mention a very important thing. We'll just get that out here. Is, is that there is a spirochete disease in the book. Okay? There's a spirochete disease, and that's really in the center of the story. And I'm not going to say the name of the disease. It's fictitious, of course, but I will tell you the genus and species. The genus and species for the disease, which is spread by deer ticks, is Torigelius flaterni. Huh. All right, so that's the genus and species of the disease. But if you want to know the name of the disease, you're going to have to get the book and read it. I, 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 I'm heading over to Amazon right now. Great. <laughs> so you'll see, you'll see one more purchase. <laughs> Use them. <laughs> I put a decent amount of money into the book. I can tell you that. Yeah, I was impressed by all the all the work you did with your editors. That's uh, most. They were people, great. Most people don't do that. They were great, and they both came to my book signing. Uh, the first one that I did there at the Riverhead Library on the 20th, December 20th. And I had them stand up. I introduced them, and and uh, it was it was great. And uh, it was just a wonderful time. Well, that's so cool because most people, you know, like I said, have a book in them, but they don't sit down and actually go through the blood, sweat, and tears of putting it on paper. you got to be into it. Yeah. you got to be a goal-oriented. I was very goal-oriented at that point, and I really started to enjoy it, actually, after a while. And it was a really cool experience in the end, and I have to say uh, it was really a good experience, and I feel enlightened. I feel like I'm a different person. The book definitely uh, changed me in a changed way. Changed you, huh? Yeah. I had to learn so much for it, you know, and I really learned so much, and uh, it really made me think about my life and our, and our world differently. Yeah. And uh, very happy to be healthy and alive and having survived horrible Lyme disease. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, I mean, I tell you, when I was home convalescing, when I had Lyme disease, for a while I thought that was it. You know, I was finished, you know, because it was rough. It wasn't exactly linear, you know, getting better. Yeah, it never is. And then, uh, but I'll also, before I leave, I was going to say also that I had, I had been acupuncture. I know you're an acupuncturist. I am. And, and acupuncture has been very important for maintaining my health, particularly with holding off any Lyme recurrences. Good for you. I encourage all people that listen to this broadcast, go to an acupuncturist who's familiar with Lyme disease. And uh, I still go every five weeks. And uh, part of my therapy, when I first started with Dr. Dr. Beriscano, is he encouraged me to go see an acupuncturist. Isn't that interesting? That's terrific. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's definitely boosts my immune system it, tremendously. It does. It's a wonderful preventive uh, tool. It's yep. not going to cure Lyme disease, but boy, it's going to help you, the person, the physiology be a lot better. It definitely helped. It helps uh, right away. You feel endorphins. Yep. 
sometimes it puts me right out when I get my acupuncture treatment. Do you take a little nap? <laughs> I do. Sometimes I do, and they put on real nice spacey music, which I'm really into electronic music, by the way. Yeah. I play electronic music myself. I'm a guitar and synthesizer. And uh, so it puts me out, and I just relax. I feel great after that, but it definitely has a residual effect, and it enhances my immune system. And I'm, for the rest of my life, I'm going to see an acupuncturist. Oh, good for you. I'm glad to hear it. So anyway, it was, it was great talking with you. Likewise. And I hope the viewers enjoyed our uh, discussion. I'm, and they check out the book. I'm, and uh, think about your lives and uh, and how uh, how you have it. And, and remember, we create our own reality. That's, there, that's Dr. really important with Lyme disease. Dr. Campbell's big on that. We create our own reality. Because of, both directly and indirectly. Yeah, because the Lyme, Lyme disease will want to create a reality for you, and it ain't a good one. No. No, definitely. It'll cloud your thoughts. Yeah. And it can make you feel cold and dark. Yeah. And uh, But uh, the acupuncture and all the nutraceuticals and all the exercise that I do, it just really helps. Cool. For sure. Great talking with you. Likewise. And how old are you? Uh, 50. Oh, going to be 51. Okay. Yeah, I'm 59. So we're kind of in the same grouping there a bit. Yeah, whatever that grouping is, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, we're getting a little older and a little wiser. I, I certainly hope so. Yeah. So it was wonderful talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Person. All right. Take care. Thanks Izzy. so much. Really cool interview. Yeah, Izzy's quite the character, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Interesting life as well. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Please go to our Facebook page, search for Lime Ninja Radio on Facebook and like us there. And you, you can also find the interview with uh, Izzy there and leave a comment underneath, please. We'd love to hear what you're thinking and different ideas you have for interview. We do get comments from time to time with suggestions, and we really appreciate that. We want to know what you want to hear about and who to contact. So please leave us a message uh, and some feedback there. That would be terrific. All righty. Sure. And again, the Facebook page is Lime Ninja Radio. If you just type us in the search book, the search uh, bar up top, we will get there, right? Right. Aurora, do you have a Lime Ninja fact of the day? I do indeed. Lay right. it on me. <laughs> When ninjas hear a tsunami warning, they get out their surfboards. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.